All right. Well, it's uh, an incredible privilege to be here together as believers as we corporately celebrate and worship God and, and we remember what he did on Good Friday. Um, personally, for me, it's a, a privilege to be here and, and preach that message. Um, it's one I take seriously, perhaps too seriously at times. Um, but, yeah, when, when I was approached by Steve and James to consider preaching tonight, um, it's one where my heart said yes and my head said, hold on a second, just give it some thought. Um, and um, I end up obviously saying yes because I'm here now. But um, I met with James for lunch and he's like, you know, why don't we we'll catch up and, and you can talk through any concerns you might have. We can talk about what, what the plan looks like. I'm like, all right, that sounds great. Um, so we had lunch and James just said to me, he's like, mate, just, not mate, but man, just pre- preach, preach authentically and preach biblically. I'm like, well, do you want me to focus on a particular passage or do you want me to look at any particular verse? He's like, no, just be authentic, be biblical. I'm like, well, you've just opened up the entire Bible to me, James. Thanks very much. Um, so there was a, a lot of fear and frustration that came with that responsibility about thinking about it. And I, I sat on it for about two weeks. And I'm just getting nothing. I'm, I'm praying and I'm fasting and I'm wondering, you know, God, give me, give me the message that I need to deliver. Um, uh, two weeks later, I'm like, I'm still not getting it. And it comes to this, this point on Friday night, um, I'm kind of pacing around the kitchen like this caged lion, and I'm not very subtle in how I feel emotionally. So my wife eventually, Jackie's like, what's wrong? I'm like, thank you for asking. Um, here's what's wrong. I'm like, I'm getting nothing. God's not speaking to me. I'm praying. I'm fasting. She's like, well, here's my answer. Ask God again. I'm like, thanks a lot. And she's like, well, what do you want me to tell you? So I ended up storming upstairs and went to bed. And, and that night, I just played some worship music. And, and I asked God again, just from, you know, from the depths of my heart, what do you want me to preach on tonight, Lord? And I felt like he gave it to me in a dream. And so in the dream, I wake up. And I'm coming down the stairs from my bedroom down to the middle floor. Um, all of a sudden, I see this thing just whiz past my head. And it hits the wall at the back. It's like, Wham! I'm like, what was that? So I kind of go into this duck and roll, and I'm lying on the floor. I'm behind the, um, the dining room table. I hear this other thing fly past my head. It's like, wham, and smacks into the wall. It's like this kind of mini explosion. And I look down. I pick up this little plane. It's a kid's toy, um, but it's metal, um, and it's making these explosions into the wall, which I don't think is anything significant in the dream. But as I pick it up and I look around, we, we have some, some doors to our Juliet balcony. And uh, as I look around, I see the back of somebody going through the right-hand side, which doesn't have a door, um, as opposed to the left-hand side. I see this guy walking through the, this door, which in reality doesn't exist, um, and then disappearing. And then I woke up. Um, so I said to God, like, what does this dream mean? Um, and I felt him direct me to John 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy it's not very Easter, is it? So why are we here? Is this just another day? Is it, is it just Friday, March 25th? Or is this Good Friday where we remember what Christ has done? Is there hope in contemplating this thing? And I'd argue that yes, there is. Um, as I prepared personally for Easter, I felt it required fresh contemplation of what the cross meant. So I read articles, I listened to sermons, I watched The Passion of the Christ, which I swore I'd never do again. Um, 
there was audio and descriptions of the crucifixion and I'd be reading these things, I'd be studying them and I felt like just God giving me this fresh vision and what, what, what actually he'd gone through. And I think, um, you know, I'd be walking down the street, walking home from work and I'd be in tears and blubbering like a crazy guy and, you know, watching the passion and just crying my eyes out. Um, but I felt like God stir like a fresh vision um, and I think all too quickly we kind of pass over the cross um, and we can say to those that we love, those who are believers and those who aren't, Jesus loves you, Jesus suffered and Jesus died for you. And we can say it with a smile and it doesn't really mean anything until we contemplate that fully. So I want to spend just a little bit of time practically looking at what does the cross, what happened on the cross? What did Jesus go through to secure? What, what suffering did he go through and what, what, was, what did he go through through death to secure our salvation? And as I read, um, there was a quote, Roger, um, Roger Ebert is one of my favorite film critics. Um, he's passed away now. But as I read this um, review that he did on Passion, he talks about when he was an altar boy um, in the Catholic Church. And he says, as an altar boy serving during the stations on Friday nights in Lent, I was encouraged to meditate on Christ's suffering. This was not necessarily a deep spiritual experience. Christ suffered, Christ died. Christ rose again, we were redeemed, and let's hope we can get home in time to watch the Illinois basketball game on TV. Much like maybe some of us are feeling tonight, let's get home and let's, let's hope Dave doesn't preach too long because we want to go and watch uh, March Madness at 8.30. But I feel like explanation leads to greater clarity and greater appreciation, so to speak, of what, actually, what Jesus actually went through on the cross. Now, it's interesting to note the Romans didn't invent crucifixion. That's a Persian concept which the Greeks then brought into the greater the world as, as Alexander the Great started conquering the known, the known world. Um, but the Romans, as they do with everything, kind of perfected this as a means of capital punishment. Um, I'm kind of reminded of a joke within the life of Brian when the people's front of Judea are talking about what have the Romans ever done for us? And it culminates in this kind of conversation. They're talking, they want to overthrow the Roman Empire. They're like, well, what have the Romans ever done for us? And John Cleese in the end is like, all right, all right. But apart from better sanitation and medicine and education and irrigation and public health and roads and a freshwater system and bars and public order, what have the Romans ever done for us? So I think whether it's capital works or whether it's capital punishment, the Romans um, perfected anything that they did. And that included the crucifixion. It officially became the most painful, the most torturous of deaths, and it was reserved for those specifically who were, you know, causing political uprising and insurrection within the empire that the, that Rome had created, and something they couldn't stand. And the people who were crucified were done so as a public example um, to show that this is what happens to people who try to overthrow the Roman Empire. So, what happened to Jesus? Well, Jesus, before he even met with the Roman Empire officials, was beaten and spat upon and mocked. Um, and went without sleep, and then the next morning he's presented before Pilate, and as a young guy, I thought, you know, when Pilate says, I'm going to whip him and release him, I'm like, that's a benevolent guy, like, that's pretty fair, like, he's not going to kill him, it's just whipping, and he'll be fine. But when you think about what scourging was at that time, it's something that was designed to bring the victim close to death. So Jesus would have been stripped, and his hands would have been tied to an upright pole like this, and then 
naked, he'd have two soldiers either side who'd have short, short-handled whips, which they called flagellum. It would have heavy leather thongs, which at the end would be secured by two balls of iron or lead, and then sheep's bones would be embedded along the whip. Um, and it was designed to rip the flesh as they whipped, uh, the iron balls obviously creating that tension to, to, to make that work. Um, and what would happen is that um, his back and his buttocks and his legs and his shoulders would be whipped over and over again. And the Romans didn't respect the 40 lashes that the Jewish um, council had endorsed as, as the maximum punishment for that. They just kept going. And at first it would produce kind of these superficial lacerations. And as, it went, as they went on, it got deeper and deeper until eventually like, the back has left this bloody mess. Um, and it goes down deep into you know, the muscles and the nerves um, almost to bone, um, Jesus would have been left um, with severe blood loss um, in extreme pain. Um, and then they took him away and they put a crown of thorns on his head. And when you, the crown of thorns, as it dug into his head, there's um, sensitive areas around the head where it would have caused not just pain but a lot of bleeding um, in addition to the blood that he'd already lost from, from the whipping. And then he's beaten and mocked by the Roman soldiers and then forced to carry the crossbeam of his cross to Calvary. Um, we can infer from what the Gospels say that Jesus was so weak from the scourging, it was so bad, it had brought him so close to death that he couldn't carry his crossbar or crossbeam to the cross. And then they'd nail the guy to the cross. And they'd use nine-inch nails, which were a third of an inch thick. Um, the nails, we know, couldn't go through the hands because the hands wouldn't support the weight. Where it would have gone through is the wrist, um, where there's two bones um, that can support the entire weight of the man on the cross. Um, it would have severed what they call the sensory motor median nerve which causes extreme pain up and down the arms. And then they'd nail the guy, Jesus' feet to the cross, one nail through the feet. They perfected that so that there'd be minimal blood loss and maximum pain. And so Jesus, or anyone who is on the cross, goes through this cycle of pain where they cannot, cannot breathe. And so they're forced to push up on their legs, which causes extreme pain through the legs. As, as they slump back down, the pain goes back through the arms, and so continues this cycle. Um, And death was designed to come as slowly and as painfully as possible. Um, it's not through pain, generally, that the victim would die, but a, a result of shock, exposure, dehydration, blood loss, and then eventually dying of asphyxiation or choking to death. So when we say Jesus loves you, Jesus suffered for you, Jesus died for you, let's think about what he's gone through to get to that point. He died and he suffered absolutely. And there's joy and happiness in that. But let's think about what Jesus had to go through to get us to secure our salvation. God's zeal or his passion and God's meekness or his humility culminate at the cross. And I think it gives us fresh vision and fresh eyes when we look at John 3.16. It's not a verse we can take lightly. For God so loved the world, that's God's zeal, God's passion for us that he gave his one and only son, his son in obedience went to the cross 
and in humility and meekness stayed there when everything in the world told him to come down. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's his love that causes him to give us life. We, I think we all too often think of it as God you know, meeting out punishment on, on this whipping boy, whereas in fact it's Jesus' obedience to God the Father and God the Father's love for us that, that caused this to come into effect. But back to the dream. And back to the passage, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. It prompts three questions from my perspective. Question number one, who is Jesus talking about? I think we have to look at that in the context of the verse. Any, we can quote any Bible verse out of context. It's so easy to do, but we need to look at these things in context. And so the context comes from verses 1 and 2 and verses 7 through 10. Very truly... I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. Therefore, Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Now, Jesus is telling this figure of speech. It's not a parable. It's what they call a figure of speech in John. Um, And he's talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time. And this is coming straight after a time where Jesus has healed a blind man and the Pharisees have kicked this blind man out of the synagogue for, for admitting that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And so as he relates this figure of speech, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are forced, they would have been forced to think about What is he talking about? And immediately their minds would go to Ezekiel 34. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Now this issue of shepherding appears all throughout the Bible. It's very near and very dear to God's heart since the beginning of time, but especially when Israel became a nation. God wanted priests and leaders and kings who would shepherd his people and who would honor his people and love his people. And when we look at when God established the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve everything that they needed in the garden, but Satan convinced them that he had more to offer them and that he had abundant life. But yet, look, when they take the piece of fruit and they eat it, the result is not life, but death. And the same thing is happening here. The shepherds of Israel have been leading the flock astray. They've been taking advantage of them for their own profit and their own benefit, and God is saying to them, through Ezekiel, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to you shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. God is rebuking the shepherds in Ezekiel 34 and Jesus does the same in John chapter 10. It's very veiled. It's this kind of very um, subtle way of, of attacking these leaders. In Luke eleven fifty two, he's more direct as he's eating with the Pharisees. Woe to you experts in the law because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who are entering. 
So Jesus is outlining and he's reiterating that these shepherds are bad shepherds. They're not shepherding the people. And as a result, they're not entering into heaven themselves. And neither are the people who are under their care. And we've got to ask the question, if there's bad shepherds, is there a good shepherd? Thank God that there is. In the second half of this passage in Ezekiel 34, God is speaking. He says, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be the prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. God is directly intervening here with his people and he does it again. This is a direct prophecy of the Messiah, the King Jesus, the son of David, of the line of Judah, the king of Israel. And Jesus takes this concept and he applies it to himself. And this is why the Pharisees are so angry, because Jesus is saying, I am the good or the true shepherd. This is what God prophesied so long ago, and I've come here to fulfill it and take it and claim it for myself. He says in John chapter 10, The second part of verse 10 and verse 11, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now the dream began to make sense. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, which leads us to question number two. Why does the good shepherd have to lay down his life for the sheep? Why must the good shepherd lay down his life? Now Jesus is not talking about any shepherd. He's talking about the good or the true shepherd. He's talking about himself. But the laying down of life had roots in this shepherd imagery. So the shepherds, as they protected the flock, would be subject to wild animals and thieves and robbers. And this is that concept that Jesus is taking and applying. Um, These guys were in danger as they shepherded. They would be willing to lay down their lives at points. But Jesus is saying, I am the good shepherd. And it's interesting to note as we take this concept of Jesus being the good shepherd, as he lays down his life, he is the sacrificial lamb. Let's try and get, wrap our heads around that one. When John the Baptist sees Jesus walking along the riverbank, he calls out, here is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That can only be done by Jesus' death and resurrection. I wouldn't be happy if I was Jesus walking along the river anonymously and John calls out, here's the guy who's going to be the sacrifice for you all and he's going to die and he's going to suffer. It's this concept of the lamb being sacrificed on behalf of the sin of Israel. Could all of this have been done without sacrifice? I'd encourage you to think that the answer is no. Could it be done without the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep? Now God is outside of time and space. We could try to apply a finite way of thinking to an infinite God. Um, But what God does is he works within the confines of our culture, all the while radicalizing it and subverting it. And we see that in this concept of sacrifice. The concept of sacrifice wasn't something that was original to Israel. It existed in this Mesopotamian valley and the ancient tribes. But God takes this concept a step further. Instead of doing it to appease God, it's doing it in worship of God. And God essentially says, 
even that is not important. It's about the state of your heart. And that's why when the prophets can say, um, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, it's because of that very reason. Because if the people's hearts are pure and the sacrifice is brought, then that's what brings glory and honor to God. It's not the actual sacrifice itself. It's just a symbol. And when Jesus comes and he dies on the cross, it's taking this concept of a sacrificial lamb and God saying, there is no need for sacrifice anymore because I have fulfilled the law in all its essence and all its perfection. My heart is pure. Jesus has died in obedience to my will. And the sacrificial system is now dead. Scripture constantly refers to this concept of a of atonement, and especially of a great atonement. Jesus talked about it constantly, about his death and his resurrection. He talks about laying down his life, rising in three days, which is another concept that Jesus is taking and radicalizing because the Jews believe that the soul left the body after three days. Jesus is saying, in three days I'm going to rise again. I'm taking control over death. I'm taking control over the spirit world, and my spirit is coming back, and I have authority over life and death. Jesus understood his position biblically, and we don't have time to go through all the verses in the Bible that refer to this, but I think the key, one of the keys is when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with his disciples, they're talking about Jesus' death. Where have you been? Haven't you heard these things about the, the Christ dying? And that he, they haven't seen him come back at this point. And Jesus points out to them, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses which is all the law and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. I think we can try to avoid it as much as we like, but that concept of sacrifice and Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice is clear. And even Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, without even realizing what he's saying under the prompting of the Holy Spirit, says, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. There's this divine and this human element that come together at the cross. We have to see it as I did it, my sins sent him there. He did it, his love sent him there. It brings us back to John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now if we take away the death of Christ, as it's interpreted by the scriptures, and the disciples, we reduce Christianity just to any other religion where God needs to be appeased by our effort, our sacrifice, and where we have to earn our salvation. My son Jonathan, who's seven, competes in USA G gymnastics um, level four. At his first meet that he went to, it was a small meet he cleaned up medal-wise. Um, we were happy and so was he. Um, but the next meet that we went to was a bigger meet. There was bigger competition. There was more talented guys. And he didn't do as well as what he hoped to do. And so we get to the medal ceremony and we go through that. And he's a little bit disappointed. And we said to him at the end, well, what did you learn from this son? He's like, I have to work harder. And that's fine when you apply it to gymnastics, but when you apply it to Christianity, it doesn't help because Jesus and God don't need us to work any harder to earn our salvation. 
we can't apply this to Christianity. It's a radical new law and function that Jesus is bringing in. So in the end, the third question is, what does this mean for us? I'd like to say that none of this matters without the resurrection. If we stop at the cross, we remain in death. It's like the song goes from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. And if we're not looking at a resurrected Jesus who's sitting at the right hand of God in the sky, then we're worshipping a dead God. And the, the um, um, writer Nietzsche says God is dead. And if, that's, if we're worshipping a God who's still in the grave, then that, then that saying and that becomes a prophecy that's bone-chillingly true. But John, in this chapter brings this to a beautiful and what I'd say logical conclusion when Jesus talks. He says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Jesus is not only the good shepherd, he's a sovereign shepherd. He has authority over his life and he has authority over his death. He has authority to take up his life again because he lives in obedience to God. But I'd encourage us to think that none of this means anything unless we accept it. Without acceptance of Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus' death is pointless. And it's just another historical artifact. He's just another man dying for another religious cause. Salvation is God's work. Man's work is to respond. We can choose to receive it or we can choose not to. Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, which implies that the action is on us. Everyone is thirsty. We have to choose to drink. It's like the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. The horse is going to die on the riverbank unless it chooses to dip its head in the water and take a drink. And it's the same for us. Jesus gives us that offer. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. We need to take that and we need to accept it and we need to drink. Hebrews 4 tells us that we have to receive mercy and find grace. Receiving mercy is easy for the one getting the mercy because the mercy is granted by the person giving mercy and the person who receives the mercy gets it whether they like it or not. If I choose to forgive Anyone in this room, Steve. Steve gets forgiven for whatever offense that he's caused me, whether he likes it or not, because I've chose to show him mercy. Grace is different. If someone chooses to show you grace, grace requires acceptance of the one who's getting the grace. And that's why I think the writer of Hebrews says we have to find grace. It requires us to seek it. It requires us to take it. It must be accepted. Which means that the action of Jesus, the good shepherd, requires a response. So whether you've heard this message for the first time and you want to enter into a relationship with the good shepherd, whether you've believed and have had doubts and like Thomas, when you experience and you see the resurrected Christ, you say, my Lord and my God, I believe whether you're firmly established in the faith and you're struck again by the weight and the significance of Christ's death and resurrection, it requires a response. And how you choose to respond to that is a very personal thing. 
But we can do something corporately. And that's why we share communion together. When Jesus met with his disciples the night before he was crucified, he broke bread and he drank wine with them. He told them, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Jesus calls them friends. He refers to them as servants, but now he calls them friends. It's a very intimate term. It's a very intimate moment that Jesus is sharing with these guys. And he says that he eagerly desired to share that meal with them. He's instituting a new covenant. He's taking this concept of Passover and applying that concept of Passover to himself. He is the lamb. And I think John, the book of John is very clear that Jesus is slaughtered at the very same time that the, lamb, the Passover lambs are being slaughtered. There's no coincidence in that. Jesus is the lamb that was sacrificed for us. And that requires a corporate response. So I want to encourage us now. We have bread, we have juice, am I right, am I left? Um, if we just want to come up, James, if you can play. It's a very, I'd encourage us to treat this as a very intimate moment where we can remember through symbols the bread and the juice what Jesus has done for us. Father, we thank you for Good Friday. And we can call it good because we know that you died in obedience to what God said. You had authority over your death and your life. And we worship you. Lord, we come before you as we celebrate communion together. I pray that we'd be struck afresh by what your death and what your resurrection means and how you secured our salvation at the cross.